So before I even get started with the sermon, particularly for those who are watching live streaming, uh, if you're someone who comes to church at New Hope Chapel, you know that I sort of move around a little bit. That's just who I am. Even as a kid, I used to pace around the, the house as I'd be thinking about something, and my parents used to say, stop pacing, you're stressing me out. Uh, but so that's just sort of who I am. Uh, if I happen to sort of step out of the frame of view for a second, I will come back in, you know, in a minute or so. So don't think, oh, you know, where did Pastor Steve go? He's off. Who knows where? Uh, never coming back. Uh, I'll step back in. But I'll do my best to sort of stay within the confines of the frame for you guys at home who are watching but uh, as you may remember, we've been uh, in this sermon series, we've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew, sort of marching our way through this book. Uh, and today we're going to be in chapter 10, so you guys can open up your Bibles there and be flipping there. Uh, specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through to just the first part of verse 26. So Matthew 10, verses 1 through 26a. And what we're going to see, I'm kind of giving us just a little summary of this passage, and what we're going to see here as we work our way through this, uh, is that in this passage, Jesus sends out the disciples, right? He sends them out. He has this task for them to, to go out uh, amongst the villages throughout Judea, throughout the, the promised land there in Israel, and go and proclaim effectively the gospel, right? The kingdom of God, it has come, it has arrived, the Messiah, he's here, uh, and proclaim the gospel to those who have not heard it. Right, so he's sending them out, and what we're going to see, what we're going to talk about, I'm sort of already almost moving into application already, getting ahead of myself, but, but what we're going to see ultimately as we get to our application is that really it's very much the same for us. Right? Just as uh, Jesus himself sent out the disciples to go and proclaim the gospel to those who were far from the Lord, who didn't know, who didn't understand, right? in the same way we're a sent people as well. In the same way Christ is, is sending us, even in our daily lives as we go to work, I know sort of in the midst of the pandemic and the coronavirus, we're maybe not going to work quite as much and we're a little more isolated, but just sort of in regular daily life, even as we go out uh, about our daily lives as we're in the world, right? we are a sent people to sort of go out into the world and proclaim the truth of the gospel and reach people to uh, effectively go out into the harvest fields where there's a harvest that is waiting, right, and reap a spiritual harvest to bear fruit for God, for his kingdom, and lead people to the Lord. And so that's sort of where we're going to be going with all of this with application, that not only are the disciples sent, but we too, as followers of Christ, are sent to go and bear that spiritual fruit for God, for his kingdom, to, to bring about that harvest, that spiritual harvest. But before we even dive right in and look at our, our main passage here, Matthew chapter 10, 1 through 26a, I kind of want to back up just a little bit here uh, and sort of set the context. And so we're actually going to back up to chapter 9 and read the few verses that are, are before our passage today. So Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, because this really sets the context in which Jesus then goes and sends out the disciples. So let me read it for us. Matthew 9, starting at verse 35. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. 
right? And this is the context in which then Jesus goes, right? The next passage goes and sends out the disciples. And so here's sort of the context, what is sort of set for us here is Jesus basically says uh, this, that basically there's a harvest field out there. There are people out there who, who don't understand the truth. They don't get it. Yet God is sort of calling them to himself, desiring them to be brought into the fold, into the kingdom, right? And so there's this harvest field. There's this wonderful harvest that's waiting, and yet there are all too few workers, all too few laborers going out into that harvest field to bring about, uh, to go and reap and bring about a, a spiritual harvest, to bear fruit that lasts, of course, for God's kingdom. And so it's in this context where he says, hey, there's a plentiful harvest, but not enough workers, in which he, it's in this context that then he goes and says, well, I'm going to send out the 12, right? I'm going to go and send you out into the harvest field to be those laborers in the harvest field to go and reap and bring about that spiritual harvest. And I'd say, really, our situation today, again, sort of in this sermon, I'll sort of flip back and forth between what we're talking about here and then sort of applying it. I'll sort of summarize our application. But even sort of thinking of applying this to our situation, I'd say, you know, nothing's changed, right? It's still the same situation. There is a harvest field. There are people out there in the world, in Westboro, in Northboro, in Grafton, in Hudson, you know, in Massachusetts, the U.S., the whole world. There are people, right, who don't know the Lord. Right? They don't know the Lord, they don't understand the gospel, and, and, and they're stuck in their sins and rightfully, justly under judgment for, for it, for their rebellion to the Lord. Right? But God is calling those people to himself, desiring them to come to faith, to receive everlasting life. Right? So there's this great harvest field, there's a harvest that's waiting, God is, is desiring to bear great fruit and bring about a great harvest, but there's a need for workers to go out and go into that, that harvest field and labor by bringing the message of the gospel, by proclaiming the truth about Christ, by being witnesses for him, there's a need for people to go out and do that and, and, and be used by the Lord to, to reap and bring about that spiritual harvest. I'd say our situation today is very much the same as it was for Jesus. So now we get to sort of our, the, our passage proper here, right? Matthew chapter 10, we've sort of set the context here, and now we're going to start reading here, and we'll work our way through and do all of our teaching and, and apply what we've learned, of course. And we'll start right at verse 1. So it says, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. And I'm going to pause here. We'll get to the instructions in a little bit. Uh, but I sort of want to look at these, these four verses plus the first half of the fifth verse here. So here Jesus is, is sending them out, but I, I want to sort of start with verse 1. Right? It's not like Jesus sends out the twelve and they're just sort of helpless, utterly unequipped for the task, right? It's not like, hey, you know, hey, disciples, um, I have this job for you, but I haven't really prepared you for it. I haven't equipped you for it. Uh, hopefully you can bring it about, but probably you're going to flounder and fail at what you're doing. That's not how it plays out, but of course, Jesus equips them. Uh, certainly the whole of Jesus' ministry up until this time, he's been training the disciples, right, just sort of day after day as they're living life with him, and he's, he's their teacher and, and teaching them, right, all of this truth and wisdom and so forth and, and living it out by example. But, but not only that, we see in verse 1 further equipping. It says, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. 
right? It's not like he gives them this task and certainly driving out demons and healing the sick. This is part of what he's going to call them to do, right, that we'll read about as we sort of read on here. But it's not like he gives them this task and says, go and do this. Go and, and heal the sick. Go and cast out demons. Do these things, uh, but you have no power to do it, and you're just sort of helpless and on your own. But rather, he equips us. He gives us all that we need for the task to then go and be sent and carry out that task. And again, sort of thinking of an application, I think often when we think of us as sort of being this sent people, right, that we are to be witnesses for Christ in the world and daily living, we are to, to certainly bear witness to him, uh, certainly proclaim the, the gospel as we have opportunities, whether at work, uh, in, a, in the neighborhood, with family, with friends, wherever we go, in the grocery store, uh, just to be a witness for Christ as we have opportunities to do so. Certainly that, that's our calling, but I think all too often our, our mindset is sort of like, am I the right person Am I quite equipped enough for that task? I've certainly heard that from many Christians. It's sort of like, you know, that, that person, that, that elder, or that spiritually mature person, or, or the pastor, uh, certainly you're equipped to do it, but, but I don't know if I'm ready for that. What if they ask these questions? I don't know if I'd have great answers for it. I'm just not ready for the task. And I think many Christians sort of sit in that, that, that status and standing of feeling like I'm just unequipped and, and the task isn't for me. And I don't mean that there isn't a place for sort of honing skill and gaining knowledge and being further uh, skilled in being able to be a witness for Christ. There's a place for that, certainly. But if you're a follower of Christ, then, then you understand the gospel and you are sufficiently equipped to go out and share it with others. That's just sort of the reality. And furthermore, you have the Holy Spirit and you've been gifted by the Holy Spirit in certainly various ways. Right, and so we are equipped for the task of being a witness for Christ. Doesn't mean we can't grow in skill in doing that, but we have the basic equipping that is needed to go and do that. So I think often we sort of have that excuse of anyone but me. I'm just not the right person. I'm not ready for it. Surely there are better people, right? And Jesus is saying, if you're a follower of mine, then you are sufficiently equipped for the task. I have equipped you, so go and bear witness to me. Proclaim the truth, right? So he equips them. For the task, and then he sends them out, right? Verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And I want to pause here. It's not to say that in our day and age today, we should literally apply this to our situation and say, oh, I guess, you know, we're not to, to bear witness uh, to Christ, to the Gentiles, or any Samaritan towns, and just go to the lost sheep of Israel, and that's it. Right? We have to understand that this was sort of God the Father's plan and sort of an order of things, that he had sent the Son, speaking of us being a sent people, really, us being a sent people, in a sense, starts with, with Jesus being sent, right? It starts with God the Father in love for, for mankind, out of love for us and, and great grace toward us. Uh, he sends his Son, and so Jesus was sent, on a rescue mission, and now here he invites the disciples to sort of join him to play a role in this rescue mission by going, of course, to these villages all around around Judea and Israel there, right, and, and to be proclaiming the truth of the kingdom and about the Messiah, about Christ, and, and, and the gospel, right? They were invited into that, and on top of that, not only does Christ invite them into his rescue mission and the rescue mission of the Father, but we are invited into this as well. Right into this rescue mission by going out into the world and proclaiming the truth of the gospel. But there was sort of an order to God the Father's plan, and it was his mission and, and his intent and purpose to send the Son initially and, and primarily right to the Jews, 
right, to God's people, his covenantal people, and send the son to them to go and, and of course, offer up himself as an atoning sacrifice that's central to his, his ministry, of course, what it's all about, but also to go and minister to them in other ways, healing the sick, casting out demons, all of that, uh, and, of course, proclaiming the truth of, of the gospel, the, the gospel message about him and that, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of God and, and what he came to do and proclaiming all of that. And, and the plan of the Father was to go and send the Son to carry out this ministry uh, amongst the Jewish people and then from there for it to be taken to the rest of the world, right? So in Jesus' time, he knew, yes, of course, this is ultimately going to go to the Samaritans. It's going to go to the Gentiles, of course. It's going to go to, to the ends of the earth. But at this moment, my mission and my calling is to, of course, as he says, the lost sheep of Israel. And then from there, ultimately, the disciples and others will take it, of course, to the world. So there's sort of an order to things. So for Jesus, yes, and here for the disciples, go to the lost sheep of Israel. But ultimately, we know, and this includes us, it's, it's ultimately going to involve going to the ends of the earth as well. So, reading on, he says, as you go, proclaim this message, right? This is sort of at the heart of them being sent. They're not sent for no purpose just to go and wander about and, and do whatever, but they're sent for a purpose, and it's to proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near, right? To put it simply, right, the kingdom of heaven, it's come near, the Messiah, right, has, has finally come to set up his messianic kingdom, and of course, how's he going to go and do this? He's going to do it by offering himself up as, as the sacrifice for the atonement of sin, so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be reconciled to God, have everlasting life in him, right? Uh, when he says here, let me read this for us here, when he says, as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near, effectively you can say the message they're proclaiming is the gospel message. It's the gospel message about Christ, that he is the Messiah, he's the Son of God, he has come, he is bringing the kingdom of heaven, uh, establishing it, and it's established in him, in his blood. And so they're going, and they're proclaiming the gospel message. That's sort of at the heart of them being sent. That's what they are to go and do. Now they sort of back that up with other things, right? Verse 8, this is also what they're to do. Heal the sick raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, right? And why are they to do this, right? If you think about it, in a sense, it sort of reinforces the message that they're proclaiming in various ways. It certainly backs it up in the sense of power that, hey, this isn't just some random person coming here telling us that the kingdom of heaven has arrived and telling us about the Messiah, but you know, who, where is he from? Who's he serving? Is it God? Is it someone else? But then when they see these wonderful, mighty works that are clearly from the hand of God, that certainly reinforces the validity of the message. But also, it sort of it reinforces the content in a different way. If you think about, well, what's the gospel about? Uh, in sort of a general way, you can say it's about captives being set free. And if you think about it, that's what, what's being done when you're healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing those who have leprosy, driving out demons. You have people who are held captive by something, maybe demonic oppression or some sort of sickness, leprosy, some sort of illness. Uh, and when you heal them, you're setting them free from that affliction, from that bondage. And that's pointing toward sort of the greater affliction that we're held captive by sin in the greater way in which we're set free, of course, from, from affliction, and that's in Christ, in his blood what he has done for us there on the cross, making atonement for sin. And so even all of those miraculous things, healing the sick, right, this is pointing toward really the, the core content uh, of what they're proclaiming, and it's the gospel message, and it's reinforcing it. 
to sort of put it generally, in a sense, they're proclaiming the gospel message, but proclaiming it powerfully. It's not to say in our day and age that as we go and proclaim the gospel, it has to be accompanied by healing the sick and raising the dead and cleansing those who have leprosy. Those may not be spiritual giftings of ours to, to heal the sick and so forth. Right? That doesn't mean that we can't live this out uh, in, in our lives today, but rather in general, this, the statement that's being made is proclaim the gospel and there ought to be sort of a powerful quality to the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, as well. But then he, he closes this verse, freely you have received, freely give. And what he's saying is, I haven't charged you, disciples, talking to the 12 here, I haven't charged you for either these gifts of healing or, or all of the knowledge that I have imparted to you. I didn't charge you anything. I didn't make you pay to then receive this from me. So you ought not to then go and charge people as you go about to, to various towns and villages, right? You ought not to charge them and say, oh, you'd like, love to be healed of your blindness. Well, you have to cough up this much money. This is sort of the, the payment for that. And then I'll carry out that healing. Jesus is saying that, that's not how it's to operate. That's not how it is to be done. Uh, and then he goes on, right? So you freely you have received, so freely give. So he goes on, do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. Because that might be sort of the natural thought if you're, if you're the disciples here thinking, okay, well, you know, somehow we need to be provided for. So we're not to charge uh, people for our services. Okay, so does that mean then uh, that we're to bring money with us and that way we'll be able to provide for ourselves sort of in that way? Uh, and he says, no, don't do that. And he's going to explain ultimately how they'll be provided for. He says, do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. Right, so here's what he's saying. You arrive at, at some village and find someone who sort of seems like a, a decent, you know, upright person uh, and stay with them, right? You know, hopefully there will be someone in this village who, re who will recognize uh, that you're coming out of certainly a, a love for the people in that village, a desire to impart truth to them and care for them and minister to them by healing the sick and casting out demons and so forth. And so they'll be willing, and certainly hospitality was a big part of, of, of the culture of the day. Uh, and so they would be willing to be hospitable and say, hey, you know, uh, even if you're not charging for your services, please, we, we want to provide for you. Come stay in my house, and we'll make sure that there's a meal on the table for you. You know, you'll be provided for, and so it'll be taken care of. And so that's Jesus' plan for how they're going to be provided for here. He says, don't actually charge like there's a fee for some sort of miracle or some sort of impartation of, of the gospel and, and, you know, proclaiming the truth. Uh, you're not supposed to charge for it, but you also aren't supposed to pay for it on your own by bringing your own gold or silver or whatnot and paying for your expenses. But, but uh, of course, as he says here, the worker is worth his keep. That is, uh, those you're going to minister to, even if you're not charging them, they ought to, out of recognition of your ministry to them, there ought to be a willingness to uh, effectively support you and care for you and provide for your needs. Right. If you want to look at this and say, you know, well, how do we interpret this in light of, you know, if he says don't, don't charge anything for your services, I don't want to digress too much, but I do want to address this a little bit, right? Freely if you, you have received, so freely, freely give, don't charge anything. You might think, well, how does this relate to sort of pastoral ministry? Uh, and certainly elsewhere in Scripture it's quite clear that, well, a pastor deserves his wages and salary and should be paid for, for what he's doing. Uh, so, well, freely you've received, freely give. Is that sort of contradicting that? I think we have to understand the context. And here the context is sort of like frontlines missions work. 
and you could sort of, to put it in today's context, imagine if you're sending a missionary to some far part of the world where there are no Christians, you're not going to expect that person to charge people a fee for what he's going to declare to them, you know, for the gospel message or for any miraculous workings that he's going to do, right? You're not going to expect those non-Christians just to sort of pay him a salary. You would expect, rather, maybe he's going to be supported by ascending church, maybe he's bivocational, that sort of a thing. So this is a little bit of a different context, but sort of to, to continue that narrative. But if then many souls are one for Christ, and sort of a church is planted there, and now that person, that missionary, serves as the pastor of that church, now it's right and appropriate. It's not sort of now just sort of this, this front lines missions work, but now this established church, and it's right for God's people to sort of to provide for the pastor and, and the one who's ministering to them in that way with, a, with wages and salary and so forth. Uh, so just to sort of explain any potential contradictions or how you might say, well, how does this line up with those other passages? Uh, that's a good way to, to understand that and interpret that here. But now moving on. So he's still here talking about, right, whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. He says, as you enter the home, give it your greeting. And certainly a standard greeting would have been peace to you, peace be upon you, or, or even maybe a little more generically if you're talking about walking into a household, may, you know, may peace be upon your household, your house, your home. And so he's saying, right, as you enter, give it your, give it your greeting. That is, give it that, that greeting that is effectively a blessing. May there be peace upon you and your household, right? So he says, do that. Give that standard greeting and, and really mean it and, it and have it be a blessing upon that household. And then it says, if the home is deserving, right, if they're sort of faithful in, in showing ha- hospitality and they're kind and they're generous and loving, if they're deserving, let your peace rest on it, right? So in a sense, reaffirm that blessing of peace upon that household. And then he says, if it is not, though, if the home is not deserving, if they are not very hospitable, if, if they treat you poorly, right, and so forth, uh, well, then, then what? When, then what are we to do, right? So it says, uh, if it is not, let your peace return to you, right? If they're not deserving of, of a pronouncement of blessing of peace upon them, then let it return to you. He goes on, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that town, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. And I want to talk a little bit about the imagery of shaking the dust off of your feet. You, to, to sort of understand it rightly, you want to understand it in, in sort of the context of the day and the age. Uh, and the thinking of the Jews at this time was basically that the very land and, and sort of dust of, of sort of Gentile territories, right? If you go off into some sort of Gentile territory, maybe you, you, know, you have some business trip or for some reason you have to go to some far off place. The, the sense is the Gentiles, it's like they're so polluted and defiled and filthy, the very dust of the earth there is defiled. And so if you go into their land, then now as you're returning and you're about to enter into to Judea, into that promised land, right, into the land of God's people, you would shake the dust off of your feet because it's like the very dust itself is, is defiled, it's polluted. And it's sort of a, a statement as well, uh, sort of against the Gentiles or those, you know, you're shaking the dust off of your feet with regard to. It's sort of a, a distancing of yourself. It's sort of like, I, I want nothing to do with them, and, and, and I'm disassociating myself from them and sort of their pollution and their evil and so forth. And so he's saying here, right, if you enter some sort of home or, or village uh, and they just, they want nothing to do with you, they will not welcome you, they will not listen to your words, then, then he says, fine, then leave and shake the dust off your feet, right? Sort of a statement of these people, that home, that household, that town, right, they've rejected the Lord, they are uh, filthy and defiled in their rebellion toward God, and it's sort of like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm disassociating myself from you, you have it your way, that's fine, you want to rebel against the Lord, then, then do that, but I'm not going to be a part of that. 
and sort of certainly a, a part of that implicitly would have been a statement of, of sort of judgment upon that people, uh, those you're shaking the dust off of your feet with regard to. Not to say that the idea is the one shaking the dust off of his feet is sitting in the position of judge, but it's sort of affirming God's judgment upon such people for their rebellion. And so that's certainly what would be in view there as well, is sort of the shaking the dust off of your feet. You've rebelled against God. You want nothing to do with him. Fine, have it your way. Have it your defiled, polluted, evil way. But no, there will be judgment and, and consequences for you. And he goes on, truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town, right? It will not go well for that town that will not listen to you, will not welcome you, and rejects what you have to say, that rejects the gospel message, rejects Christ. And he goes on, verse 16, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. I'd say this is, is one of those where there's no change. You know, in Jesus' day, as he's sending them out, he's saying, you know, here's the reality of the situation. As I'm sending you out, I'm going to tell you how it is and what it's going to be like. And it's not like everyone's just going to love you and welcome you, and it's always going to be great and easy. No, you're going to be going out like sheep amongst wolves. They're wolves, right? There's a reality to that, and they will seek to... Uh, devour you and destroy you. They will array themselves against you as enemies. And I'd say in many ways, it's, it's the same thing today uh, in our world today, where as Christians, as we go out into the world and, and we seek to be witnesses for Christ and proclaim the truth of the gospel, the world doesn't want to hear that, doesn't, doesn't want to hear the message of the gospel, doesn't like what we're about in the sense in which they're wolves in relation to us like sheep, right? And so he says, I'm, I'm telling you how it is. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. And there's great wisdom in, in that statement. Of course, there is. It, Jesus said it. So, of course, it, it's perfect wisdom. Um, and what we might naturally think of is, oh, you know, we need to be as innocent as doves. Certainly, as we're going out into the world, we need to be living upright lives and be a, a good witness for Christ in that way. And that would probably jump to the forefront of our minds. And yes, absolutely. But there's also a, a truth here that we need to be shrewd as snakes, recognizing that we're sheep out in the midst of wolves. There's a place for recognizing what the world is, understanding how the world operates, and not sort of being foolishly naive about it, but being wise and shrewd about it and shrewd in how we deal with the world. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to be deceptive and dishonest and deceitful, but it means that we're going to understand the world, the way the world operates and the way people are, and just sort of wisely uh, respond to that. And so there's a place for being shrewd as well as being innocent here. So he goes on, be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. And here you have to realize, as Jesus is saying this, he's, he's now gone from sort of a specific situation of uh, addressing, hey, disciples, I'm sending you out in this very moment on this mission to go to some of the villages and so forth. And now he's becoming coming, uh, very generalized in what he's saying. It's not that this is going to take place, right, uh, on account, uh, where were we? Uh, verse 17, be on your guard, you will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. It's not like this very instance of being sent, sent out by Jesus, that's going to take place. And, and even as we continue to read on what's going to happen, on account of you, you will be brought before governors and kings and so forth. He's not saying this singular instance of when I send you out, this is all going to take place. He's now becoming more generalized and saying, this isn't the only time that I'm going to send you out on this mission, but ultimately your, your whole lives are going to be characterized by being sent out right, into the world to go and be my witnesses and proclaim the truth of the gospel. And in that 
sort of bigger sense of being sent out, not just this singular one time, this is what's going to happen. And again, not just to the disciples, but to others who will follow in those, their footsteps, to Christians generally who just go out and in daily life, they're, they're bearing witness to Christ. This is what the type of stuff that is going to happen to them. So he says, be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogue account you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Right, so here he's saying, is you're sent out, and again, not just the singular instance, which is quite clear because he's talking about being present in the midst of Gentiles, and earlier on in this passage he said, just go, just go to the Israelites at this point, right? Just go to the, the Jewish people. Uh, but clearly Jesus has in mind, of course, ultimately it's going to go out to the Gentiles, and you're going to be part of that being sent out to the Gentiles, right? And when that takes place, this future sending out, and, and sort of collectively for all of God's people as they're sent out, he says, you know, I don't want you to be surprised about what it's going to be like, and there's going to be hardship. You're going to be persecuted. It's not always going to be easy-peasy for you guys. But he says, also, don't, don't stress about when you wind up in situations, and maybe you're before judges, before governors, before kings, and you have to sort of give an answer for yourself. He says, don't worry about it, right? You have the Spirit of God with you, the Holy Spirit, and he will give you the words to speak. So don't ahead of time be worrying and stressing about, what am I going to say in that moment? What am I going to do? No, the Spirit is with you, and he will give you the words to speak. And he goes on, again, sort of illustrating what it's going to be like as they go out and they proclaim the truth of the gospel, and even for how people are going to respond to this proclamation, in particular when people come to faith. It says, brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Right? The idea here is, you know, you imagine whether it's a brother, whether it's a father, you have a family member who comes to faith. Let's just say it's, it's, it's a, a son, right? And he comes to faith in Christ, and what will be the response is a response of all too often the father saying, I'm totally not on board with this, utterly opposed, so much so that I will hand you over to the authorities even to be put to death as a result. And that might sound, uh, sound a little bit surprising to us. You'd think, man, it's your own son, or it's your own brother, or your own father, or whatnot. How could you do that? That might sound foreign to us in today's day and age, uh, where you wouldn't expect that to necessarily happen in the West. But in fact, it's actually not so foreign in our day and age, and we see it happening all the time in the Muslim world, where someone comes to faith, and the family literally disowns that person. At times, not always, but at times, they even go further, and the family will literally try to kill their family member who turned toward Christ. And, and this is something that, that Jesus is saying here, this is going to happen. This is going to happen amongst the Jews or the Gentiles and, and, and through the ages, right? Don't be surprised when this stuff happens. When brother will betray brother to death and a father his child, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. And he goes on, verse 22, you will be hated by everyone because of me. Right, that's sort of like the pep talk you want before you're going to go out on a mission. You know, Everyone's going to hate you. It's not always going to go well for you. Right? But he's saying, I want to lay it out. I don't want you to be surprised by how things go. You will be hated by everyone because of me. Right? Hey, if they hated me, if they refused to listen to me, right? and this is the response of so much of the world, so much of many of the Jews, this is their response, right? they didn't receive Christ. They rebelled against him. They hated him, and ultimately they abused him and put him to death. And hey, he's saying, if they treated me that way, why would they treat you, my followers, any differently? Right? So you will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, 
flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And the idea here, when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. It's not sort of this, like, terrified fleeing, because you sort of see a little bit of the context in the, in the next verses. It's sort of like you want to get through all of these different towns. Right? You want to make sure that you don't leave any towns unvisited and, and not having heard the truth of the gospel. Sort of, If one place, if they're going to persecute you there, uh, if they're not going to listen to what you have to say, then leave. Leave them, not just sort of for your own sake and your own safety, but also there are other towns that, that very well may listen to you and heed what you have to say, and so go there. And he says, truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And this is a verse that's maybe a little bit of a head-scratcher. Is this talking about sort of the second coming of Christ? And so even when he comes, whatever time that is, uh, whether the disciples, I mean, they're not even alive on this earth anymore, but maybe it's not just talking about them, but, but others who will come after them. They won't have gone through all of the towns of Israel, even by the time Christ comes. Uh, that's not what's being said. I think we have to understand what Jesus is talking about. I'd say fairly clearly talking about when he refers here to the Son of Man coming. And I'd say what he's referring to here uh, is the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And it's not to say that's the second coming uh, of Christ, right? That, the second coming of Christ is still in the future. It hasn't happened yet, of course. Um, when he, it does happen, he will come and he will complete his redemptive, restorative work and uh, usher in the new creation and, and his kingdom and, and all of its fullness and glory and perfection and so forth. Right, But what you have to realize is sort of the, the siege of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, is sort of like a foreshadowing uh, of the actual second coming of Christ. And you can sort of see the parallels. If you think about it, well, what's going to happen at, at the second coming of Christ? And, and see how sort of this, this destruction of the temple is a little bit of a, a foreshadowing uh, of that, a bit of a precursor to it. And if we think of the coming of Christ, for, for those who are God's people, it means wonderful things. Right? As I even just mentioned, it's going to mean great joy for us. Right, We will uh, have the new creation set up. We will be a part of it. We will uh, enter into eternal glory. We'll receive resurrected bodies. It'll be wonderful. It'll be glorious. It'll be great. But we also have to realize for those who don't trust in Christ, it's not going to be a great day for them. It's going to be a day of judgment, uh, a day of a pouring out of the wrath of God, a day when Christ comes, the Son comes, and visits mankind, and, and it's a day of judgment. And if you think about the, the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, it was a day in which, in some sense, the sun showed up, not bodily, not physically as, as his second coming, but sort of showed up to bring about judgment upon the people of Israel, right? They had rejected the sun. They refused to listen to him, by and large. Certainly there were those who did. Uh, they had put him to death. And as a consequence and as punishment, right, this was, this was poured out upon them, right? The, the Romans coming and, and besieging Jerusalem and destroying the temple. And so this was a day of sort of God showing up on scene, even if it isn't Christ coming bodily speaking, right, his second coming, right? But sort of the sun showing up on scene to execute judgment and wrath upon those who had rebelled against the Lord. And so in a sense, it, it sort of is a precursor, a foreshadowing of the real next coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. Uh, and so it makes sense sort of to refer to it as before the Son of Man comes. Not comes as the real second coming, but sort of comes in a lesser way that sort of points to the real coming uh, of Christ, his return. So he's saying by 70 AD, to put it in different terms, by 70 AD when that siege of Jerusalem happens by the Romans, uh, the temple is, is destroyed. By that time, you still, he's saying, 
you disciples and those who are with you, you still will not have finished going through the towns of Israel. So if one town, they don't want to listen to you, go on to the next, because there are more that need to hear this truth before that day of judgment comes. So then going on, he says, this is verse 24, the student is not above the teacher, right? Hey, you my disciples, all who are my followers, you're not above me, the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the students to be like their teacher, right, their teachers, and servants like their masters. If the head of the house, he's talking about himself, Jesus, he's talking about himself, if the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household, right? Basically, and we see this in scripture where he's called effectively the devil. I'll talk a little bit here. I don't want to go off in some great tangent, but maybe you're wondering. Well, sometimes some translations will render it Beelzebub. Some will say Beelzebul. Uh, the Greek is Beelzebul in every case. There's no variance. There's no confusion about it. It's certainly Beelzebul. Uh, but I, I'll talk a little bit about what that means. But before I, I get there, uh, basically what he's saying, to put it simply, however you want to render Beelzebul, is basically, hey, if they've rejected me and so strongly that they've called me the devil, right, you're my followers. Are they going to do any different for you? Are they going to operate in any way that's different for you? No, if they called me the devil and hated me and rejected you, they're going to call you the devil and hate you and reject you as well. That's just the reality of it. But just sort of, if you're curious, what's this Beelzebul? Certainly it's, it's a name for, for the devil. That's quite clear and, and, and obvious. But scholars are certainly divided a little bit on exactly what it means. Uh, certainly one of the classic interpretations of it is that this is um, a, it's tr a transliteration in the Greek, certainly, from, from Hebrew, um, or Hebrew or Aramaic. You could go either way on things. Uh, but so it's transliterating the same sounds, bringing them in, into the Greek. Uh, one of the classic interpretations is, well, this is Baal Zebub, which is a, or Beelzebub, as how it would typically be said in, in English, uh, which is spoken of. This is a Philistine deity that shows up in Scripture, right? We, we see reference to it. It's a Philistine deity going way back Old Testament times, right? Times of Israel way back in the Old Testament. Um, and so it's a Philistine deity. And so one of the likely interpretations of this is that Philistine deity sort of became emblematic for evil and idolatry and just sort of everything wicked and rebellion against God, against Yahweh and his ways. And so it sort of naturally became a name for the devil himself, right? Um, and certainly it, it fits if you think of well, what, what does Baal, that's, that's Lord, Master, uh, Zebub or Zebub as many would say, um, is, is flies, so lord of the flies, master of the flies, lord of the flies, even the meaning of the term sort of seems like, well, that, that sort of fits for the devil, uh, however you want to think of it, whether flies are certainly plague-like and, and associated with death and bad things, and it's sort of like he's the lord of that bad stuff and evil and death and, and filth and so forth. Um, but also even in the sense of he's sort of lord, master of the flies, in the sense of the imagery of sort of the demons being like this this plague of flies, and he's the lord of them. Sort of these demons that are fly-like, and he's the master of them and the leader of them. So it certainly fits as a possible interpretation. Uh, another possible interpretation, and this goes along with, with the, the rendering of the last letter there as, as, a, as an L, which is how it shows up. It's a lambda, or L, in, in, uh, in Greek, uh, is possibly lord of filth. Um, and so that's a possible interpretation, filth, dung, manure, um, and that would certainly fit as a title for, for Satan that the Jews would have applied to him. You can certainly see how that would crop up, that he's sort of the Lord of filth, everything bad, everything wicked. Uh, that's a possible interpretation. Another is that it could be Lord of the house or Lord of the household, 
And in this sense, it would mean sort of the household of wickedness and evil. He's sort of lord of the demonic household. Um, I would sort of looking at everything other than the context of this passage, this verse right here, this usage here, I would probably say that's the least likely. Yet if you actually look at the context of this passage, it says, if the head or master or lord of the house has been called lord of the house or lord of the household, how much more the members of his household. Contextually, it very much could mean that, and Jesus is sort of giving a little bit of a play on words. Uh, so it could be any of these three, uh, you know, really scholars are divided on it. I think it's also possible that it could be all three at the same time. It could be that one of the meanings was the initial meaning uh, of the, this name for, for the devil, but as time went by, certainly there was a realization from the Jews that this word can mean multiple things. And in fact, all three of these multiple possibilities for what this word could mean are rightfully applied to the devil. And so it could be at different times, different meanings are emphasized, recognizing this one word can sort of refer to all three of these. So I think you could pick and choose, but I think it could also be that it's all three. And even if one was the initial meaning, the others could naturally crop up as other interpretations and meanings for the word that is used here. So that's just a little explanation of that. Not that that's central to our passage, but I think it's one that people might sort of wonder about. Why do different translations render it a little bit differently? Beelzebub, Beelzebul, what does it mean, and so forth. But so anyway, uh, then in verse 26, the beginning of verse 26 here, we get what Jesus gives as sort of the appropriate response, or in a sense the way you shouldn't respond, to be a little bit more specific, to, to all of this opposition. Right? He says, I'm, I'm sending you guys out, not just the, the disciples, it's immediately for them, but we're invited into this as well. And he's saying, I'm sending you out, and I've sort of made you aware of how you're going to be treated, how the world is going to respond to you being sent out. And he said, they're, they're not going to love you. There'll be some who, who appreciate you and the message and, and, and all that you're doing. But by and large, right, the world isn't going to be all about you and what you're, what you're sort of supporting and what you're preaching and, and what you're doing. And many will hate you and they'll oppose you and they'll persecute you and they'll do all sorts of awful things to you. And he says, but, right, it's in this context, he says, so do not be afraid of them. Right, And it, it, it's a natural and, and response if you sort of think about if you're the disciples here and you know, you're right here with Jesus and he's telling you, hey, guys, I have this mission for you. Here's what I want you to do. You've got to go out. You've got to tell everyone about me. Uh, and by the way, here's how it's going to go. Uh, you know, you're going to be handed over to uh, people are going to hate you. You'll be handed over to local councils, be flogged in synagogues. You'll be before kings and governors and not in the way you necessarily want. Sort of your, your life will be on the line typically, uh, right? You know, this is how it's going to go. You can imagine a natural response would be a little bit of fear. You know, who wants to be flogged and beaten and have your life on the line and so forth, right? But he says, don't be afraid, right? Even though uh, this is certainly a cost that you might undergo and bear for the sake of Christ and, and being a witness for him, right? He says, don't be afraid of them. And sort of what's the logic there? Because this is something that to us might seem quite terrifying. But really the logic is, right, all they can do is... Right, mock us, they can beat us, they can even take our lives, our bodily life from us, but that's all they can do. Eternally speaking, there's nothing they can do that, that is of real eternal significance and affect us in any sort of eternal way. They can afflict the body, but that's basically it. They cannot take from us all that we have in Christ. They cannot take from us the eternal life that we have in him, this wondrous, glorious, eternal inheritance, right? Spending eternity with God, perfect joy, perfect peace, 
uh, experiencing him, his presence forever and ever and ever, right? They can't take that from us. So why should we fear them? Just because in a temporal way, a temporal way in this life, they can affect our bodies. Big deal. Eternally speaking, they can do nothing. And so there's no reason to fear them. And even going a little bit further, right, God is always with us. He cares for us. He's watching over us. That doesn't mean that these things can't happen to us. They certainly can. But even as we go through them, it's not like we're all alone, you know, sort of tackling this all on our own, uh, facing it on our own. But he says, no, right, of course, this is part of the logic. God is there with us, seeing us through even these hardships. Even if we wind up before councils, we wind up before governors, we wind up being flogged and beaten and even having our lives on the line, it's not like we're alone in that but we have the Lord there with us, strengthening us and seeing us through that all. And so we're not to be afraid. We're not to sort of shrink back and say, oh, this is terrifying. I'm not sure that I, I, I'm, I, I can bear this, uh, all that might happen to me, but we're to say, no, I'm not going to be afraid. All they can do is, is affect my body. They can mock me. They can beat me. They can kill me, but they can't do anything to me of eternal significance. They cannot separate me from my Lord, my Savior, my God. They cannot take from me the eternal life that I have in him. And so I will not fear because they cannot do that and because I know the Lord is with me every step of the way. But so I kind of want to now, reaching the end of this passage, kind of come back and, and look at this big picture and sort of, uh, is, is certainly this passage is a little bit of a progression of thought and I kind of want to give it to us big picture. It really starts at the end of chapter 9 where Jesus sets the context. And he sets the context for the disciples but again, I'd say it's the same context for us here and now today where he says, basically, that there's this wonderful harvest field that's before us, right? And there's a, a spiritual harvest that's just waiting to be brought in, just waiting to be gathered in, just waiting to be reaped, right? But there are too few workers. There are too few people out there actually working in the fields, bringing in the harvest, gathering it, right? And so what does he do in this context? Certainly, he says, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. But what does he wind up doing? He then goes and sends workers out into the harvest field. So he sets this context for the disciples. It's the same for us, where there's this wonderful, in our world today, there, there's, so, there's this wonderful harvest field. There are people uh, in the world, all before us, billions of them who do not know the Lord. And God is calling them to himself. And he's sending us out. He's saying there is a harvest that is plentiful, but the workers are all too few. Go out, my faithful people. Be my workers in the harvest field. Bear fruit in that harvest field, reap there, bring about a spiritual harvest for me, for my kingdom, for my glory. And so he sends us out in that context, right, for the disciples, but it's the same for us. And he sends us out, he sent the disciples out, and he sends us out. But before he even sends us, right, as we realize in verse 1, he equips, right? It's not that he sends us out and we're sort of helpless and hopeless and there's nothing we can do to... to to bear any good fruit or accomplish anything. No, but before he sends us out, he equips us for the task at hand. It's what he did for the disciples. He had trained them for quite some time before sending them out, and he even gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. He equips us for every task that he lays before us, and this is uh, one of those tasks, certainly, that he does that for. He does it for all tasks. Anything that God gives us to do in service to him, he's going to equip us for that task. Uh, and that's certainly the case for this evangelistic work of being sent into the world. He says, I'm sending you, but you're not helpless, you're not hopeless, but I have equipped you for the task, so go out and, and, and reap and bring in that spiritual harvest. But he tells us what it's going to be like, and he says it's going to be hard. He told the disciples it's no different for us. It's, it's going to be hard. Not everyone's going to welcome you. Not everyone's going to like you, and, and there may be persecution and maybe even fierce persecution and strong persecution. 
but that can't deter us. We're told that our response is not to fear, but to just move forward and say, no, I'm going to be faithful to the Lord in this, whatever the cost. I'm going to be faithful to him and be that sent people, sent out into the world to bear witness to him, to proclaim the truth of the gospel, that people might enter into God's kingdom, be forgiven, receive everlasting life. And when I think about all of this, too, what a blessing and a joy. I think all too often we, we come to the topic of evangelism, and I think in our day and age, all too often it's sort of like, oh, that's, that's something that I have to do, but it just doesn't come naturally to me. It's not a task that I really want because it's just difficult. It's just awkward in our day and age. But really, we should view it not as some sort of burden like, oh, we have to do it, but, but really it's a great joy. Again, if we think about it, right, Christ himself was sent. That's why he came to this earth. The Father sent him to rescue mankind. And Jesus wondrously, graciously, lovingly invites us into that. It's not just some awful burden, but he says, in love, right, come and join me in this work that I'm doing. Join me in this rescue mission. The Father sent me to rescue mankind, but I have a role for you in all of this. And it's to go and go out into the world. Just as I was sent into the world, I'm sending you out into the world as well to tell everyone all about me to tell everyone about all that I did on the cross, making atonement for sin so that through faith in me, people might be forgiven and have everlasting life. And so it's this great joy, this is how we should view it, a great joy to be invite, invited into this wonderful rescue mission that the Father and the Son are on and to be sent just as the Son was sent as well. And so as we think about this, as we think about this work of evangelism, I just want to challenge us to be faithful to it, to understand that... that the harvest is plentiful. It truly is. The workers are too few, though, and we need to be faithful and be sent out. Certainly the Father, certainly the Son, they have sent us out into the harvest field to bring in that harvest, and we need to be faithful to it, knowing that we've been equipped. All too often we use that as an excuse for not doing it, but we have been sufficiently equipped for the task. We know that there'll be hardship, but we need to persevere in the face of that and not fear and live this out faithfully for the Lord, for the building up of his church, for the building up of his kingdom, ultimately, as everything is, for his glory. Amen. And let's pray. Lord God, thank you for sending your Son, as we're talking about being sent. Even the Son himself was sent by you, Father, on a rescue mission to save us, and then what a joy, what a blessing that we are invited into that rescue mission. We are invited by you, Lord Jesus, to join you on it, to have a role in it. And that role is to just proclaim the truth. The truth about you, who you are, what you've done for us, the life that we can have in you through your death and resurrection and, and personally received through faith in you. We know that you have equipped us for the task of being sent and proclaiming that message. May we not use a failing to be equipped as some sort of excuse not to do it, but may we recognize you've equipped us and we need to faithfully go out and do it. And may we not shrink back from that role because of a sense of fear of how people will respond to it, but may we persevere even in the face of persecution, adversity, being mocked, or even worse, Lord. May we just be faithful to your calling, be sent as you were sent, and just bear witness to you, and may you bring in a great harvest for your kingdom, for your glory, in Christ's name, amen.